0: Welcome to Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And Cindy, the weather has changed.
1: Yippee-ki-yay, yay, 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 I'm so what, what, I'm so I, I am so excited. I'm so happy. Yesterday morning
0: it was 36 degrees.
1: Right? It was 39 that, here the other day, so that is it not is okay. awesome. No. I'm so excited. No. What? What? Oh, it's the best time of year, no, leading into no, the oh, very best time of year, winter. Look, look at you! You're so
0: beat. With snow, everything, everything dies.
1: And beauty. Oh, but snow is beautiful.
0: Oh my, yes.
1: It feels like it's I, alive. Yeah. yeah, I love, I love this time of year. And the, I was as I was driving up Charles Street to come to the studio. You know, those, um, the trees along along Charles Street are so pretty, and they're all starting to turn. It's so pretty. It's exciting.
0: Yeah, I'm afraid I, I. It's six months from now that uh, that that lifts my spirit more. That being said, mm-hmm. the cooking this time of the year sometimes is my favorite because mm-hmm. you have yeah you sure. have the product of sort of all of the harvest, all of the, It's summer leading into all the autumn product, and and uh, there's so much that you can do. And I kind of wanted to to go to to talk about it to go about it with a bit of a healthy bent, you know. That's um, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, you know, and you can do the healthy bent, and then I can always, you know, do the healthy bent, and then do a little bit of fat and put, bent, and
0: then, and then put some butter on it. <laughs>
1: An unhealthy bent. It's not unhealthy. It's just then, happier food. Happy food. Oh my god. Happy food. I'll, it, I'll, there should it be is some happy contrast. To have and... Delicious.
0: <laughs> it's happy to have something delicious that does not.
1: <laughs> oh, I, there's lots of beautiful things we can do that are healthy, for sure.
0: Something, yeah, no question. Well, and so, the
1: cool thing, too, is that we had that uh, stream of, uh, you know, week or whatever of pretty serious heat here, and, um, you know, when I was talking to Ian yesterday about what he was going to deliver to us, one of our farmers, he said, yeah, you know, that he brought out the, you know, we we had some more heirlooms.
0: The last, yeah, the last tomato, The last ones are interesting because not just for heirlooms, but for things like Romans and whatnot, because they, they, you get that heat sometimes that Indian summer, um, but you you have still have cool nights mm-hmm. and because of the cool nights the acids are up so yeah. they may not they may not be as sweet in some ways they may not be perceived as sweet as some of the summer tomatoes you know the 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 mid August right beauties that come but the the acid's stronger you just dress them differently you know exactly. you, they, they, they those don't require any any acid that's just you know really good olive oil and a mm-hmm. plate of tomatoes and salt and you know that's delightful.
1: Yeah, I'm excited <laughs> to see them today when they come in. I, <clears throat> we're still doing a a number of relishes and and we still have the scallop BLT on the menu, so it's nice to be able to, you know, especially since uh at the post mentioned it. You know, I'm I'm pleased to still be able to do that dish. Um yeah, and it's it's a favorite for a lot of folks. So, it's kind of fun to have that crispy bacon and those beautiful local tomatoes and a little yes. upland cress and just that fun play on the breadless BLT with a scallop in it.
0: <laughs> that's been that's been around. That's probably like a 2004 dish. I yeah, I've say. been
1: doing it a long time, and it's. And it,
0: sometimes I I feel like you should, we should put some put some vintages on some of those uh, on some of those really? dishes on your menu.
1: <laughs> that's kind of a fun idea. Uh, well, the oysters I'm would serious. have to be 1993. I'm, I'm, I'm serious. Yeah, vintage 1993. That's that's a long time yep. to be doing those cornmeal fried oysters. Yeah, what year do we start doing the lobster bisque? Well, anyway, huh? we're talking about fall. So, yeah, I'm super excited to get cuz we're still getting
0: the, the the current version of the the shellfish bisque?
1: Yeah, the lobster soup, right. well, it was originally it is was
0: about – 9 it was 2006. Okay. 2006. Yeah, it was
1: after that it, I did it for that Parker lunch yeah, when he was doing That was
0: for that lunch for uh, Jorge Henri and and Parker and me and Mhm. And uh yeah, and I yeah, and you were you like, to do it as a one-off.
1: Yeah, you were like you have to put and it on the menu. You, were
0: you angry at me because when I was like, "Oh,
1: I'm like, there's no way I can make, do you know how many lobster so shells make- it took to make for eight people? <laughs> I'm like, how can I make it for 150 on a Saturday night or 175? But yeah, we figured it out and it's the most popular thing on the menu. So it's a good thing. Put it on.
0: Um what what's the first thing that comes to your mind, food wise? First ingredient that comes to your mind, food wise, in in the autumn?
1: It's it's all the the pumpkin, the squashes. I'm just so excited, and I, you know, I, especially since I live out in the country, I keep driving by all these farmer stands with all the gorgeous pumpkins and different types of pumpkins and different squash, and ah, it's just so exciting. I I, I want to stop at every one on my way in, um, but yeah, it's it's and we made the the spaghetti squash. Another thing all, I've been all doing.
0: All pumpkins are not. Pardon. You've been doing that spaghetti squash since we did a tasting in 1994.
1: Oh, wow. Have I?
0: Uh, if I recall,
1: gosh, with and that's with the um, yeah. tomato sauce. I actually did it the yeah, other. You
0: did that. You did that originally for a tasting in 1994.
1: Okay, I did it the other day for the first time, and honestly, in years,
0: with the tomato coulis.
1: Yeah, and oh my gosh, people went crazy. And that's you know that's the interesting thing about how things have evolved in the food world and in the restaurant world over all the years that we've been working. Is that yeah, I might have done it in '94, but we we probably you know I probably did it for like a couple of days and then immediately took it off the menu and didn't do it again and it wasn't that popular and I put it on I think it was two weeks ago we had our first spaghetti squash in and people I when I went out to the dining room people like this is unbelievably good you know I can't believe how good this is and you know we sold a lot of it I mean it really is interesting how people's you know tastes have changed and how receptive they are to vegetable courses it's it's super cool it's a nice expansion of the menu I mean it's 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 sort of opened up a whole new category Tony
0: well, I think that's that's driven by the focus on product. I mean, that you know, we've been doing this long enough that it it never occurred to me when I started going out to the farmers and and going to the markets in the you know in the nineties. It never occurred to me that it would become a trend.
1: Right. <laughs> I just thought
0: farmers are where you got food from.
1: Right. Right. Of course. Um, it, I, I never thought
0: farm to table was a trend, or people were like, well, I want to go to a farm to table restaurant. Like, uh, well, no, where do you think everything changes, um, always came from? You know.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, that's that's that that's what I learned to cook with from when I was a little boy. With my great grandmother. I mean, right. I, I don't I don't know otherwise. And 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 trying to find that product, I was always excited to bring you things to 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 play with, you know, or to take them to I had to work with it, you know, other chefs at other restaurants. And well, yeah, I was. T- it, it never occurred to me that it wasn't exciting. But as time has gone along, the clientele have moved with that, and and they have more health consciousness, and mm-hmm. there are more vegetarians and there are more vegans, and we, yeah. you know, we we work to put more excitement, and more energy into those dishes. So why don't you talk talk about that particular dish because it's not a complicated one to execute. And it can be done in more or less decadent ways, let's say.
1: Right, exactly. Well, probably the simplest way. The
0: spaghetti squash.
1: Right. The way that I make it is, you you know, and always be careful with spaghetti squash because the shell is so hard. You need a sharp knife and you need, you know, a good safe surface to work on to cut it. Uh, a, ca- a cutting board that's stable that has a, a wet towel underneath it so it's adhering to your work surface. Um, definitely not one of those horrible glass cutting boards. You need something that has, a, you know, it's either uh, plastic or it's wood, um, preferably a wooden cutting cutting board and cut the squash in half. Uh, Remove the seeds. You can either use your hand hand with a glove or you can use a a spoon to scoop them out. Spoon is probably the easiest, Um, but pull that out and then have a baking sheet um, that you can put a little bit of water in the bottom of. Turn your oven to 325 degrees, preferably on convection if you have that choice. It's good for it and it will um, obviously cook faster for you in a convected oven but the temperature remains sta- the same, whether it's still or convected. And uh, a little bit of water in the bottom so that what's happening is, is and that you put the, the squash on the sheet pan flesh side down, obviously on its now flat surface. Um, and so that allows the squash to steam as it's roasting. Uh, and then when it's done, it usually takes almost an hour. It depends on how big the squash are and how your oven works. But um and then you let it cool down a little bit. And then you can just pull the strands out, which it comes out and looks exactly like yellow spaghetti. It's so beautiful and it smells so good. As a nice natural sugar content. And then we butter poach uh, finely chopped garlic, which means we just gently cook garlic and butter, um, immersed in butter. And um, a little bit of that tossed in with the spaghetti squash, salt, and a little bit of pepper. And, um, and then I make a very simple tomato coulis with, uh, by sautéing onion and shallot and butter. Add the, a little, I do add a little chicken stock, but obviously you can skip that if you're a vegetarian or vegan or just don't want it. And a little bit of chicken stock, the tomato puree. I do use palmy tomato. It's, it's a great product. Um, You could certainly use fresh uh, tomatoes, chopped up, uh, pureed yourself, whatever you like, but there's nothing wrong with pommy And a little bit of salt and pepper. I put a couple of drops of Tabasco in. I'm not looking for spice, but it just gives it a little bit of flavor. And then uh, that sauce cooks for all of about 20 minutes. I puree that sauce. And um, when we go to plate, uh, the squash, we heat it up gently in a little bit more butter. With Then check the salt and pepper level. Uh, and the the tomato coulis we do add um, butter to it. Actually, we add beurre blanc. We do about seventy five percent tomato coulis and twenty five percent beurre blanc. Um, and you can obviously skip that if you don't want that butter, but it sure does make it pretty. And um, it, it as I always say, it rounds out the rough edges of a tomato sauce by adding that butter to it. And that that's it.
0: yeah I would say that if they want to take two steps to that, it's delicious. If you want to take two steps to lighten it, I think. One uh, instead of the garlic and the butter, you could stud the you, you literally just stud the interior of the spaghetti mm-hmm. squash with a couple of slivers of garlic. Yeah, and let then let that just steam right up into it. You get the flavor, and you're not adding the the fat. Um, and then for the tomato coulis, uh, you 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 don't have to do butter at the end. It's a, it's a different texture and flavor that you're after. I mean, I would still. I would still add fat. I would still add good extra virgin olive oil at the mm-hmm. very end, right? But I wouldn't add that to the to the puree. You know, no. I, I would add that to, um, I, I would add that to just as as a drizzle. Yeah, you could drizzle it right on top the of the plate. tomato. And that that takes yeah. the dish in a little bit different direction. But but if you're but if you're avoiding the dairy and that sort of business, that's a good way to get good flavor. Mm-hmm. Well, and um, uh, and still get you know, and get the the essence of the dish.
1: Exactly. Oh, and you were, you, were, you were talking about... And
0: I'll have to hear my, 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 my Italian friends yell at me for putting butter on
1: some <laughs> <sauce>. <laughs> Well, we were talking about the evolution of how, you know, people are enjoying vegetable courses so much. You know, I mean, you think about the butternut, butternut squash soup that I've made for years with uh, white beans and andouille sausage, which is now on the menu as a vegan soup. I mean, that's quite... I was thinking about this, this morning when I was making notes for what we were about to talk about. And I'm like, wow, you know, going from that... To Oh, then, you know, maybe we just do the squash and the beans and we leave out the andouille. And now it's literally um, because I have a couple, many folks that work for me that are from Mexico and, you know, a little bit of their own culture. They, they, the last time Lucas made it, he actually included the seeds in the soup. And I'm like, oh, it added such a kind of gorgeous, natural earthiness to the soup. So now it's just, you know, sauté onion and shallot and corn oil, add the butternut squash and the seeds and the pulp, um, a little bit of water, salt and pepper, and um, yeah, and, and cook it and puree it. And there you go. And you've got this beautiful vegan soup that tastes beautifully of butternut squash. So that's quite the change. And I still like the other soup, but it's fun to be doing the vegan soup.
0: Yeah, that's it's funny. I've been... My, uh, my sort of quick lunch solution to make sure that I get plenty of vegetables and protein recently, because, you know, I've been on a, an exercise kick and trying to get the fuel that I need for that early in the week. And I, I just did yesterday a, a good sized pot of vegetable soup, um, that's, you know, starts with garlic, onion, fennel, mm. uh, a little carrot, sweated, and then, uh, Adding a maitake mushroom stock, which is really easy to make. Nice. I mean, literally, because maitakes have so much flavor. Yeah. You know, just literally just using the trimmings to make the to make the, the the broth that you need. It's much better if you let that steep overnight um, with the mushrooms in it, and then strain it the next day. You get enormously better flavor if it cools together. Um, but with with that as a base, and then lentils, kale. Um, you can use a variety of squashes if you want to. I don't love to. Um, chickpeas are awfully good in there. Oh gosh, I love chickpeas. Uh, tomato, sweet mm. potato, nice. Um, and uh, and and a little bit of fresh fennel. You know, that's. Oh, I, I said fennel in the mirepoix. I, I meant fennel seeds toasted okay. as part of the mirepoix. Okay. And then fennel added as part of the soup.
1: That's nice.
0: Um, yep. and then uh. And then if you want, if you want a little chili sauce or something to uh out of that go for it but if you have you know roasted off like boneless skinless chicken breast really you know clean neutral protein that has good flavor mm-hmm. and i always will just to, to have to have that protein around and available that i can move in a million different directions it's just roasted in a pan with uh and 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 cooled in its own juice again because mm. you know we're not working with a lot of fat so you want to get all the flavor that you can from something all right um, but it's salt, pepper, and uh, adobo, and <laughs> um, and then just that diced, warmed in the soup, and you know you have something very solid, very helpful, and uh, very much of the season.
1: Yep, sounds good. And
0: frankly, if you're shopping from farmers in the season, you're always getting the best product with the peak flavor that you do have to wash the heck out of. Um, but you're getting it usually at the best price of the season because that's when there's a glut of something.
1: Good point. Yeah, that's right. Mhm. That's a good soup. Sounds good.
0: All right. Well, let's get into some more autumn cooking and maybe a few wines to go with it. When we come back on WYPR. This is Formula Wolf on Food Wine. Welcome back to Foreman and Wolf on food and wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And Cindy, we're talking about autumn cooking, and, and we're going to get into a few different wines this autumn. It's harvest season. And uh, it's funny that I just offered a soup recipe that is vegan also. So, yeah, the world has turned a little bit. Except for that chicken so, honestly, part. Honestly, it's sort of made the same way that my great grandmother always made. I didn't put any chicken or anything in there.
1: Oh, you? Okay. All right. Go ahead. Oh well, at, at, at the, the end, soup,
0: the soup is vegan. <laughs> the chicken yeah, right, best,
1: right, right, the chicken was. The chickens were vegan. That's an add-on. The, the vegan chicken. <laughs> that's
0: that's that that's an optional protein. There's there's already <laughs> vegetable protein in there with the lentils and the chickpeas. So it's yeah. awesome. That being said, let's talk about apples. Oh, all right. That's the well. You you said pumpkins would come to mind, and and I do want to give a little guidance on pumpkins after a bit. Okay. Let's talk about apples because apples can be used in a lot of different ways. It's not just for apple pie anymore, Dorothy.
1: No, definitely not, Dorothy. I mean, you know, like right now I have it on my foie gras. Uh, We're getting all different types of gorgeous apples. And, um, you know, for us in production, in a production situation where you're not just making something and eating it like you would at home. Well, and not always do you do that at home, but often that's how you cook for home. um, We have to Make something live through a couple of hours of afternoon prep and into service. So when you have something that oxidizes like an apple, you have to figure out how to deal with it without altering it too much. Um, so it's always what enhances an apple. And uh, what I have done is a little bit of Calvados, which is, of course, an apple-flavored liqueur. Right, Tony?
0: It's an apple brandy.
1: Apple brandy. Okay. And
0: it not only enhances the apples, it enhances your attitude. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. So I steep a little bit of saffron, just a tiny bit, and I put one cinnamon stick in with the calvados. And I, I the first time I did it straight calvados, and all the cooks just looked at me when we tasted the apples. They're like, oh, chef, these are really have a lot of alcohol. I'm like, yeah, okay, next time I'll do half calvados and half water uh, and one cinnamon stick and like a teaspoon of... Um, Uh, well, probably a quarter of a teaspoon of saffron. And um, that steeps. And while you're peeling and uh, slicing your apples, it's nice. You can go straight into that. Then you just go under the stove. I mean, it takes like five minutes for that to come up to a a simmer, turn it off, let it sit. And then you have still crispy, nice, gorgeous apples that aren't turning on you that have a little bit of that pretty cinnamon and, and saffron flavor. We did add some sugar the last time, but Oh my gosh, we got some Granny Smiths in, and they were so so sweet. I've never had a sweet Granny Smith apple like that before. They were the best ones I've ever had. Super delicious. But we've also been using like Honeycrisp and all kinds. But that's one of the things, uh, you know, with foie gras, foie gras loves fruits so much, and it's just it's nice to have that crunchy apple with it.
0: This is an interesting dish to pair something with wine wise, uh, because you think of, you know, you think oh well foie gras and sauterne, that can work. Um but foie gras with fruit you're, you usually want earlier in the menu than later. Maybe mm-hmm. as a first like mm-hmm. decadent thing, mm-hmm. honestly. Right. Um I would be I'd be a little bit tempted, especially if that if the preparation is with grannies and it's not sweetened in any way, I'd be tempted to have like really rich rose champagne or Blanc noir champagne with that rather than a sweet wine. Okay, yeah, I agree. Or maybe even uh, like an Alsace Pinot Gris. Mm, that's out. Maybe great. an Alsace Pinot Gris might work as well. Beautiful. Or, or Gewürztraminer.
1: Oh, that pretty perfume coming Something from it. It's a that little wine. bit off dry, but Ooh. has
0: yeah, good good acid, great perfume.
1: And then when you smell anyway, it and you're you're smelling um, that wine and you're eating that dish, that
0: would be great. A lot of times with with apples in the in the autumn, I want to use them in a lot of different ways. And so they they find their ways into salads a lot of times one. Um there was a sort of eternally popular uh, stir-fry dish that we had made at a place for some years that uh, was salmon with uh, a little soy glaze hmm. but it sat on top of a salad of uh of local spinach, uh green apples, bok choy, uh garlic, sesame and uh and people want bananas for it. Yeah, super and the, the fresh. A little bit of apple sweetness and mm-hmm. crunch mm-hmm. with the bok choy's bitterness and crunch. And that you know irony depth of the of the spinach that it wilted that made really like just great you know really more like a warm salad than really a stir fry mm-hmm. and uh and that that little sweet umami thing with the with the salmon with the soy glaze was that was crazy popular when we did that yeah, have to uh, reprise that dish right that sounds good
1: right it. now. I could eat that right now. well you know the other thing when I first started working with the apples when they came in we also oh, sorry, Tony, go ahead, go ahead, Tony. Oh, go ahead. So
0: the, the, the other thing that that I always think of at this time of the year is when the cauliflower comes, uh, which is soon, is uh, cauliflower and green apple soup that mm-hmm. we've done a number of times. that mm-hmm. had a little bit of potatoes, a thickener in it. And uh, and that was always a bit of a surprise because you think, oh, it's a stinky vegetable <laughs> and it's a sweet fruit. Why would you put them together? And for some reason, and it's... it's it, you know, you do it like a veloute, so there's a little bit of dairy, but super charming and delicious. And all the rough edges with the cauliflower get smoothed out, you know, and and kind of uh, soften with the uh, the little bit of, of dairy that's there, mm-hmm. cream usually, and uh, and the onion product that's in the base of almost any soup is helpful for that and kind of and sort of acts like a flavor liaison for uh, the cauliflower and the and the green apples. I always thought that was a non-intuitive and and pretty brilliant combination that was that was helpful as well.
1: Well, that and we're also we are now getting local broccoli too, which oh, I love broccoli, and when it is fresh off the plant, really, really very, very uh, good for you and wonderful to eat, and you know one of the best soups you can make. Truly, we have. Um, uh, a couple of English cheddars in the in the in our cart right now and obviously whenever we get scraps it always makes me think of, you know actually I just did buy a case of, of fresh broccoli and I'm gonna make soup with that and finish it with the um a couple of those cheddars and a little bit of cream and not too much cream but just enough to give it that richness and allow the cheese to incorporate into the soup and it's a quick soup to make, too. That's a nice thing about some of the vegetable soups. You don't, you know, it's not like you're braising meat or making something tender. It's, you know, you want it to be fresh, you want it to be healthy, and it doesn't take that long to make them. You can make them in 20 or 30 minutes.
0: I wonder about doing a very light version of uh, a broccoli soup and serving it with, use some of that cheddar to make a, make a couple of goujere mm-hmm. but with the cheddar. That would be good. And serve that alongside, if that might be a fun uh maybe that's a a, a bouche idea or something you know
1: mm-hmm. yeah that sounds good yeah i've never made a gougere with anything but gruyere so that would be that would be fun to do maybe a little reggiano but that's the only well, i
0: mean some of those cheddars like Montgomery's and whatnot there's 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 a real nuttiness a real intensity
1: mm, a lot of depth for sure and a little caramel tone to it yeah the the um yeah. That we have Booker's cheddar too, which is—I mean—that thing is like—it's—it's—it's it's, it's actually in the shape of a brick, and it is rich and fatty on the palate. Uh, oh my gosh, I love that cheddar so much, and that's a new one for us. So pretty excited to have that with some of the other uh, Irish and English pieces on the cart. It's a good time for cheese right now.
0: Yeah, that—that's—that's that's been one of the bigger changes in the last twenty years. Mm-hmm. The. Uh... All of the getting all the farmstead cheeses in the British Isles seems like the rest of Europe has been more regulated, and uh, American cheesemaking has gotten stronger and stronger. I've for sure found a couple of things this summer um, from from producers at farmers markets uh, when I was out in Chicago, uh, from producers in Indiana downstate in Illinois, <laughs> and uh, and one from Michigan <laughs> who uh, were doing really remarkable. One was doing a really good and bear knockoff. Nice. I was really kind of shocked. That's cool. Uh, and Sophie was in Chicago with me at that time, and and we we had it together, and you know that's that's cool. It was not just me. It's, it has a real French endorsement.
1: That's my it's homeland. Gross. You're that's talking about Indiana. Um, that's cool.
0: And you have a couple of homelands though, don't you?
1: Yes, the South, the North, and then all the other places <laughs> in between that I've lived. <laughs> Well, also, yeah, we not. have to talk about some more root vegetables. You're a mover, Cindy Wolf. I am a mover. We have to talk about uh, celery act. Well, because, yeah. You know, we got some celery act from Karma Farm, and it had the tops on, and I've never had celery act with the tops on. Absolutely delicious.
0: Well, I mean, that. It's one reason I don't like to cook with celery a lot of the time is because when you get the real stuff, it's so shockingly better, <laughs> you know, than the stuff that's basically grown from water. Um, when you can actually get real celery in the in the season right that's uh wow what a difference
1: well you know when we got the celery act in uh, we had a bunch of new product in and and um, uh, was just so excited about everything and because we sort of had a lot of things to work with, we ended up doing potato chips with some of the celeriac as one of the ways to use it. Oh, my gosh. So ever uh, sliced it paper thin, put it in water, let it sit overnight in the water, and then we f- took them out and, f- and patted them dry and fried them the next day. And, I mean, what a little treat that was. But, you know, obviously that's a very different, you know, sort of not the most healthy way to cook them, but certainly tasty. But a celeriac gratin can be, oh, my gosh, oh, so man. amazing. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I I think, you know, if you How fun would that be for efficient chips?
1: Oh. Be amazing, (laughs) but for a celery at gratin, I would keep it very simple because it is the flavor of celery, obviously. So you just need a mild cheese, um, a little bit of cream, and you could even put a tiny bit of chicken stock in between the layers of the celery. Act. I would slice it very thin. It can be a little bit tough and woody, so you know you do want to keep it sort of paper thin in the layers in the gratin dish. Um, But a little bit of stock, a little bit of cream, and you know maybe a little. Cuiere or, or Reggiano uh, in between the layers. I, I don't think I'd go the goat cheese route. That sounds a little weird to me. Um, but yeah, just a little bit of cheese, but mostly just a little bit of a little bit of uh, dairy and cream and, and a little stock and salt and pepper and bake it in the oven, and that's going to be super good.
0: I was thinking maybe you could use manchego or something like that, cordobes or something, you know?
1: That would be fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just one of the young ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah Usually no. not
0: quite as salty as pecorino's. Right.
1: And a sheep's milk piece.
0: Right. I, I, I like the idea of the sheep's milk with that. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Just really mild, young sheep's milk piece.
1: Well, and Montego um, doesn't fight with anything.
0: Yeah, that's. Greta like that for just a simple roast chicken might be really lovely. Mm hmm.
1: Or I can see it with, um, you know definitely like squab or something just because it would be nice even though squab is so flavorful I think it would be fun to have something like that along with like if you had the gratin and squab but you had like beets and you know parsnips and carrots on the plate that were roasted you'd have sort of this whole like you could do the gratin dish in the middle of the table for the family and you know you could help yourself to a little bit but then if you had you know your roasted root vegetables on the plate with the bird maybe they were cooked with the bird you'd have sort of a nice little contrast there and the gratin could have sort of act like a sauce in a way too.
0: Yeah, I find that little connection between the the squab, the bloodiness, the strength of flavor, the beets, the depth that's there. And I am talking about red beets or like, even like chayogas uh, and pistachios because the, the pistachio show is really fatty in that sort of situation and they have no strength of flavor. For whatever reason, that, that little combination, I find, worked really, really well.
1: That sounds so good. I love it.
0: Even if you're doing something as silly as laying out a squab breast and slicing it.
1: That sounds really great. I, I think that's a good idea.
0: I would also I would put that dish with, that combination with a wine that I think is one of the great things in the world and can be really ageable and is often under-considered or undervalued uh, in Pimonte, in Barolo, and Barbaresco. Uh, a grape that's considered secondary or often every day is Barbera. And Barbera gives you something that's not tannic, uh, but has good body uh, strong acidity, real intensity but it also really communicates a certain minerality and that picks up all those notes from the earth and, and because there's a balance of intensity there it shows off all the fruit that's in that wine and uh, that it's the right weight class you know to to put with a dish that has that kind of intensity but is not that rich and fatty and and uh, overwhelming in that way. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. That sounds great.
0: So the the best Barbera are often from some of the older vineyards that you find in some of the famous Barola villages, uh, you know, like Serralonga d'Alba uh, or uh, Monforte d'Alba. Love that region. Well, Cindy, when we come back, let's make sure we do a little bit of a primer on pumpkins because there's so many different ones out there right Mm -hmm. yeah pumpkins and their ilk and also well and let's talk about a braised dish and so that because that's we're getting into that season right and uh, a little bit about just what wines come to mind in the fall where it's uh, where to go for every day and what maybe some treats might be okay all of that more on former wolf food wine on wypr Welcome back to Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And Cindy, instead of talking turkey, let's talk pumpkins. Yes. <laughs> so, it, when we were kids, everyone's... You thought all pumpkins were were jack-o'-lanterns, right? Yes. You don't want to eat those. <laughs> What's inside of those is not nice. No. Right? You know, the the squirrels can come and eat them off your porch, but... Which has happened. <laughs> yeah, that's so many times. Carry whole sections of them away, but... Um, it, what what you want are some of the other guys that are out there, and some of them are cute. Some of them look like they're out of fairy tales. There's some that are literally called fairy tale pumpkins, and those have great flavor. What what you're after is something that has really dense flesh.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, what do you like besides some, fairy tales?
0: Fairy tales are great. Um, there are you'll also see like long, uh, long stemmed, smaller what looks a bit like jack o' lanterns that are often called pie pumpkins, Mm -hmm. uh, which can be just fine. Um, There are long ones that are sort of like, I I don't know, they'll call them banana pumpkins. Uh, It's just another kind of squash, but man, they're crazy dense. You ever pick something up that is in that shape and, you know, the big like oblong, almost like loaf of bread sort of shape, um, and it's heavier than you think it should be. That's what you want. There you go. Mm-hmm. That, that that's that's how you tell if something just weighs a lot more than you think it should. Then that that's what it is. The the really white ones are really cute, but they don't have a whole lot going on flavor wise. Um, they're ones that look like they have peanuts growing on the outside of them. Uh, again, <laughs> if if they're if they're really dense, um, they can have they can really work for it those us.
1: sort of are scary pumpkins i don't like the i don't like to see those pumpkins i think they're true oh. halloween scary pumpkins those things yeah they're that's funny those you said peanuts those, those, those on guys the other. in
0: combination with uh, <laughs> some of the other you know weird stripy ones are are uh, mm-hmm. Are good scary front porch pumpkins.
1: I I, I tried to eat, I tried to cook with one of the orange ones one time. I'm like, ugh, God, this is awful. No. I mean they really are awful. I I well, I, I, I thought I could never yeah. work with pumpkins, but that's all we used to get. Yeah. So yeah. and then I found out that my mother used to make pumpkin pie with squash. I'm like, Mom.
0: Uh, people use butternut squash. <laughs> why do you, you call it
1: pumpkin pie? And she was like, That's where my mom pie made it with butternut
0: butternut squash. Pure. Yeah, I exactly.
1: Mean, or yellow. My mom used yellow squash to make her pumpkin pie. I'm like, uh, okay. I'm
0: not going to tell her that you gave her up for that.
1: Yeah, well, no, don't tell her because she'll be upset. But, yeah, I mean, I think one of the fun things to do with pumpkin is make risotto. And, I mean, you know, you can dice up those some of those, especially like the fairy tale, do a little dice of it, and then... You know, sort of save it for the end of the risotto process, put it in at the end and let it work its magic a little bit. And I like toasted ground walnuts on there at the end as well. But a little, you know, just a little bit of onion, shallot and butter, work the work the uh, the rice. We use La Bamba from Spain, uh, but, you know, there are many different types of rices or producers of rice that you can use to make risotto. And, um, and we use a good, uh, really pretty chicken broth to make that risotto, uh, a little bit of cinnamon touch of nutmeg very little nutmeg uh, a nutmeg goes a long way a touch of cayenne and um, and then add that pumpkin at the end you could even add a little bit of like uh, vanjon wine I love that is that right the yellow wine yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah that one oh my gosh a little bit of that in there near the end of adding the liquid to the rice and then and then add the pumpkin uh, I wouldn't add cheese to that risotto necessarily. And then, like I said, a little crushed toasted walnuts on top before it goes out. That can, or you, you were talking about pistachios earlier, crushed pistachios on top, or pecans. Mm-hmm. All, any of those nuts would be really pretty on top of that uh, pumpkin risotto.
0: I think one of my favorite things I ever made with with any kind of pumpkins were we'd gotten a uh, fantastic banana pumpkin, uh, one of those big, I mean, like literally a 100-pound pumpkin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I took a big cross-section of it. Uh, and made um, gratin with them and Ooh. used a like a rice dish because they were so big in circumference that you could literally mm. <laughs> slice them incredibly thin, you know, like mm-hmm. on a slicer. Yeah, yeah, great. <laughs> and and lay them and lay them in the gratin dish. And uh That's nice. we braised we braised some veal necks mm. uh, which gave so much flavor. There's I mean there's so much collagen in the in the bone and the mm-hmm. And and that that vertebrae that's in the veal neck, and uh, just long slow braise. and uh, that with just the, the natural jus, and that that gratin, and the the gratin had had some uh, star anise and a little bit of curry and you know a a, a little bit of spices leaning towards South Asia in general, mm-hmm. a little bit of ginger and a little bit of coriander seed, and a little bit of cumin. Um, but the the veal neck was just totally neutral. It was about the flavor of the veal. That's awesome. And 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 getting flavor out of the jus. But take a minute, if you would, talk about as much as you love to talk about braising. Let's yes. let's give the okay. uh, the annual Sunny Wolf braising lesson. So well, if you were going to if you were going to braise a veal neck, right? What would you do?
1: All right. So with veal, because right now we're also braising lamb necks. So uh, veal is nice because it's you know obviously it's a younger animal, it's mild in flavor. So you want beautiful mirepoix with it. I uh, wouldn't go too heavy on carrot, but you can have carrot, onion, shallot, and um maybe a little bit of celery, but probably not much. And uh what you want to do is you really want that pan to be very hot. Obviously you're in a pot because you're going to be immersing this item in liquid, but you know, things sear better when the sides of the pot are lower. So we have some soup pots where that's the situation, and uh, that's the one I would grab for this with a lower side, wider base, lower sides, and
0: um, more like more like a rondo
1: exactly. And then you put the corn oil in, a neutral oil, put it in, you get the pan hot first, then you put the oil in. you uh, dab your meat because you don't want any moisture on the outside of that that you can that you can't have control over. So dab it with a paper towel and then nice and into carefully into that corn oil, uh, brown it on all sides, the ends, anything that's exposed surface, get it nice and brown, sort of golden brown, And sometimes by the time you're done, uh, that fat can be undesirable. So you can always, I say, knock that out of the pan or pour that out of the pan and put fresh oil in. You don't want to, hopefully you don't have to do that because there is flavor in there. So if you can control that heat and still brown and not lose the fat, it's better because of the flavor. But if you have to get it out, get it out. Just don't try not to lose any particles. Then add fresh oil. Add your mirepoix. Uh, let that cook just a couple of minutes. You don't really want to brown that. You can maybe let it caramelize a tiny bit, but uh, your goal is just to get the mirepoix going and and take it from a raw state to a sauteed state, and then deglaze with white wine, in this case, and uh, good veal stock, obviously, a nice brown, beautiful veal stock, or you could even use a blonde veal stock. The difference between a blonde and a brown veal stock is that the bones were either browned or they were not browned before you made the stock um, and, uh, cover the meat with that. I would add bay leaf peppercorn. You can decide if you want to add a little bit of fresh thyme or dried thyme. Um, I don't think I would add anything else. And, um, yeah, you know, you should, your liquid should be a couple of fingers above the level of the product. Uh, once it's come up to a boil, immediately turn it down to a very low simmer. And cover it, if you can, and either put it in the oven to finish, to braise, or leave it on your stovetop to braise. Personally, I like it on the stovetop because I want to check it all the time. And, you know, typically when you're braising something, that's going to be a heavy pot. So it's not as easy to move around. So I prefer...
0: I I agree. I tend to futz with it.
1: Yeah, I do too. So, you know, I want to see what's going on with it. I want to make sure there's enough liquid because you do want that product to constantly be covered. It needs to be immersed in liquid. And it needs to be going slowly, gently... um, you know, it's an int- another interesting thing. Watching uh, Latino cooks braise something, they boil it, and i that's exactly the opposite of everything I've ever learned about braising. And um, it, it it does give you a very different final product, but it's also a very good product. But that is not how you traditionally braise. So um, you know, I I I I've certainly seen it done, and it's excellent. But I. I would ask you to cook the way cook it the way that I just suggested, which is on a very low simmer with the with the lid on uh or even tilted off a tiny bit off the side of the pot um and then what you end up with is you're cooking until that meat is absolutely very tender uh, and going you know pulling the meat out, straining the broth because the mirepoix is not good at this point now it is possible to um Add mire- I've also done this where I've added mirepoix back to it, a fresh mirepoix that I sauteed and added back so that I have that sort of delicious flavor. Um, I've also taken that mirepoix and served it for employee meal because while the mirepoix is a very nice for a guest, it's certainly extremely edible. <laughs> I've even added breadcrumb to the braised mirepoix that I strained out before uh, for staff, and uh, it's actually quite tasty. Um, but typically that mirepoix is sort of shot at that point um, after braising for two or three or four hours, depending on how big and Tough the piece of meat is, Um, and um, yeah, so you're straining the sauce. You're either thickening it lightly with a roux, or you're just reducing it down. But honestly, with something, especially like veal, you really probably just want to thicken it with a lightly with a light roux, a blonde roux, and then um, yeah, and then and then you're garnishing it with whatever it is—chanterelles or roasted cipollini onions, or some other type of mushroom, or or braised root vegetables, um, or roasted root vegetables. Lots of things you can do.
0: So you're talking about that. I listened to you talk about that. Gave me an idea for something silly um, that might be delicious. So, so I was thinking about, because, you know, I lived in Philly for a couple of years mm-hmm. and I had a particular cheesesteak place that I like to go to. Like <laughs> like anybody does that lives in Philly. So could you make some kind of fantasy cheesesteak with some some pieces of braised veal? Because there are always those little bits like on a lamb neck, or on on a sorry, on a veal neck or on a veal mm-hmm. shoulder, mm-hmm. you know, they, like the, the crispy edges that kind of come off or peel off, right? It's mm-hmm. those pieces that kind of peel off uh, that you want. If you, you know, fricassee them on a flat top for a couple of moments, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe toss some pretty white onions in there last minute and mm-hmm. hit that with a little bit of butter to melt, right? Mm-hmm. Scooped all that business up, and laid it on a, a like a grilled piece of baguette <laughs> that was open, right?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: That that cheddar you were talking about.
1: Yeah, bookers or
0: yeah, the bookers would be great because so, it has it has to... that really like dark caramelly flavor. Mm-hmm. A little drizzle of that made into you know made into a, a fonduta basically made into a, a sauce with a little bit of cream and. And uh, a little bit of stock.
1: Good heavens! Yeah, <laughs> that sounds good.
0: <laughs> yeah, so there you go. So they, you you you're welcome to appropriate that. All right, yeah, I'm that cheesesteak idea that for for a, uh, well, you better make it small so it doesn't kill people. Little the spot. tiny
1: tiny cheesesteaks. Yeah, that exactly. Are really, really, really good. Well, exactly. and the, you
0: can even you, and you could put you could put on the side. <laughs> you could put on the side. um some little fried shallots and little chips. I was going to say, uh,
1: don't we need grilled onions or something on there? Doesn't a cheesesteak have that?
0: You put them in with, you put them with the, the little peeled pieces of the, the veal shoulder when you, when you, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, fricassee them, right?
1: Okay. Got it. Yep.
0: And, uh, (laughs) literally, I mean, I've done that before on a griddle with, (laughs) this is, this is me working at, uh, that writer's club, making lunch for those guys every day and taking bits and pieces of leftovers and making myself like fantasy lunch. (laughs) So I've made a version of this cheesesteak before. That's why I was thinking about it. Mm-hmm. She just, was just talking about that veal. I was like, oh, I know what I've done with bits of that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, and getting back to the veal neck, I had said about a lamb neck that we're cooking now, really the only difference in braising that is I would use you know, a rich chicken and veal stock to braise it. Um I would probably put more carrot in and I would certainly put some tomato paste in and I would put rosemary in, just a little bit of fresh rosemary, and I would deglaze with red wine instead of white. So it's it's that's yeah, really you, the difference. You, yeah.
0: You you I would use a little more red wine for sure. You mm-hmm. want a little more acid to break that down.
1: Exactly. And it's just the, so delicious that um, way.
0: So while we're on wine, let's take a minute or two. Um just things for the season, right? Mm-hmm. Uh so all those bright whites that get you through the summer, that's not that they're not delicious, but your taste begins to change a little bit, you know? That's it's time for something maybe a little bit richer. Um, if it's if it's richer but clean, uh and 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 honestly leaning towards the apples and pears that come this time of the year, look to Alsace, uh in eastern mm. France. Nice. Uh just simple Pinot Blanc. Quality for the price in Alsace, especially uh and some of the lighter, drier whites is crazy high. Mm-hmm. Um, just simple Pinot Blanc. You know, uh, remember Pinot Gris, which is the same grape. as Pinot Grigio. Does not give you something light and and sort of bouncy like you think Pinot Grigio is going to be. It gives you something uh, big and rich, a little bit more like Chardonnay weights. Um, but Pinot Blanc, uh, Pinot Auxerrois. Those are the things that you see. Uh, Sylvaner. You know, if you want something lighter this time of the year, those are good things to go to. Also, just whites from Macon, Chardonnay, but but uh, uh, bright and easy. Chablis, again, Chardonnay, but bright and easy. Um. And then people tend they tend to want reds mm-hmm. uh, this time of the year. The, the other white I would say this time of the year that I often like is Gavi, uh, which is a Cortese grape in Pimonte. Mm-hmm. Um, that can do really well this time of the year. Uh, but when Piemonte Reds, whether it's Barbera or or uh, from Nebbiolo. Um, a lot of times, Nebbiolo from producers that make great, Barolo and, and Barbaresco, if they're bottling Nebbiolo uh, separately, it's usually young vines from some of those same vineyards that produce the most famous wines at uh, much higher prices. Uh, and you can often get really good quality for the price in those. Uh, I would say that if you shop those well, you get very good every day. Um, things uh, simple, Valpolicella well, from great producers of amarone It's the same kind of principle, uh, and you don't have the the sort of sweetness that sucrosity that that makes it hard to match. Just for regular table wine, uh, the Rhone Valley is always a mine this time of the year in France. Uh, Rioja is of mine this time of the year in Spain, mm-hmm. and on the west coast in the autumn, it's it's the better producers of Syrah. Um, I think are, are coming to mind right away. The, one of the better producers of Chardonnay in California also produces Syrah in a cool climate in Petaluma. Uh, it's the model wine company and their stuff is very true and has a real sense of place and uh, the alcohol is not crazy high but there's great intensity and it's but that would be fabulous for uh, uh, for that squab with the beets and pistachios that we we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um now but to to pair with that cheesesteak, that's the tricky one. <laughs> that's the tricky one. You need something with, with good acidity for sure. Um wow. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Beer. No, I honestly I might go to the south of Italy for that. <laughs> All right. I might go to the south of Italy. Uh go to Basilicata mm-hmm. uh, and or or to the southern part of Campania, and the grape is Alianico. And uh, in Basilicata, it's Alianaco del Voltre. Voltere is a volcano there. And on the slopes, uh, Alianaco is particularly dark but firm, uh, not incredibly heavy or dense, but really earthy. And will do well with all the cheese and the onions and the depth of flavor from the veal mm-hmm. um, and and have enough tannin to clean it up. And then there's a very mineral version from uh, from the southern part of Campania, not Torosi, uh, but further south, uh, that does something of the same job. But maybe Wolf we'll, today is where I would go first and foremost. Sounds anyway. good. All right. Well, I think that's all we probably have time for. And, yeah, you're going to have to make that cheesesteak. I need to come eat that. <laughs> um, okay. You got it. And uh, anyway, if you want to listen to this program uh, again, because it was just fascinating, go to the WIPR website, WIPR.org. Look for the Foreman Wolf page. You can also correspond with us via email foremanwolf at Wypr.org. Uh, you can follow Chef Sandy Wolf on social media.
1: You can follow me as Chef Wolf on Instagram or Facebook.
0: And Instagram for me is the real Tony Foreman. And thanks so much for listening. Happy
1: Sunday.